Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the greatest generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, uh, the two best showers <laughs> that that is that are possible to be taken, I've always thought, <laughs> are the shower you take before you go camping. Oh yeah. And then, uh, and then, just above that, in in the number one position, the shower you take upon returning from camping. Why is the one before you go camping so good? Because it's the last shower you're going to take for a while, and so you really get into all the folds. <laughs> what folds? Oh, oh! <laughs> like you're putting your leg up on stuff. You're you're using like the uh, the the brush on the stick. <laughs> You're uh, you're you're grabbing you're grabbing the uh, the the faucet like if you're lucky enough to have a shower with one of those things that you can grab off the off the spigot and move around. Well, yeah, Adam. The last time we talked about matters of personal hygiene, the uh, Greatest Gen Facebook group almost self-immolated. So I'm I'm feeling a little hesitant about getting too deep into what your routine is. Oh yeah, uh, wreck the internet, uh, Adam's <laughs> bathing habits. <laughs> That's the quote. Yeah, so I just recently took the post-camp shower, the the Silkwood shower of showers. <laughs> so I'm feeling uh, feeling alive and refreshed again. Oh, good. My wife really loves camping, and I am, I would just say I'm a dutiful husband about camping. I have yet to come around to it, but I know the kind of camping that we do isn't real camping. It's music festival camping, and that's not the same. Having traveled on the road with you, uh, a bunch. I know that you're nothing if not dutiful. <laughs> you're dutiful. <laughs> ben, I got to tell you, one of the bands I saw at this music festival that I was at, one of our good buddies puts on this music festival. It's in the town of Carnation, Washington. It's called the Timber Music Festival. And uh, it's a yearly thing that, that our buddy Phil does every year and uh, I went to it this year as I do every year and one of the bands on the bill Ben was named Beverly Crusher whoa cool <laughs> they had my attention with the band name I hadn't heard a single bar of of their work I thought you were going to try and put out a pilsner named Beverly Crusher right that'd be <laughs> a great name what's the brewery that puts out the Star Trek themed beers what are they called I don't know they put out a couple of them already they've put out the uh the Klingon Porter and also the, uh, yeah, the Klingon Imperial Porter is made by the Schmaltz Brewing Company. You really want to name your beer after chicken fat, don't you? And That's what I was just going to say. Like, uh, rendered poultry fat, it does not make me think beer. <laughs> uh, and they also have a Pilsner, uh, which is probably the more crushable of the two. But yeah, they should really make the Beverly Crusher, the uh, the crushable lager. Yeah, you can get, use that for free, it. Schmaltz Brewing Company. Yeah, use it for free as long as you send it for free. Yeah, send us send us each a 24-pack. So, Beverly Crusher is a punk band. Cool. And they, they lit the stage on fire. They were fucking great. I heard they wail. Highest recommendation. Just a, just a strong three-piece. Man, uh, is this them at beverlycrusher.bandcamp.com? That is them. 
Cool. And uh, you enjoyed their music? I did. Uh, you know, like, music is subjective. I don't imagine it would be for everyone, but they were most definitely for me, uh, along with a really great t-shirt that I picked up. So we'll be... Uh, I know, Ben, you've instituted a strict no t-shirt on stage policy for all greatest gen live shows i understand that but yeah. uh, maybe maybe i could ask for a little bit of uh, leeway for the beverly crusher shirt <laughs> i mean as long as you're not wearing one of our pieces of merch on stage i think i can get down with it would never do that oh man i just uh, i was googling them and uh i discovered on uh, a reddit post I play in a band called Beverly Crusher and recently had a stroke. Somehow my friends managed to pull this off while I was in the hospital. They got him a signed by Gates McFadden, him or her, I guess I don't I don't know the gender of this poster, signed by Gates McFadden uh, photograph of Beverly Crusher. Wow. Very cool. Ben, there's been a piece of mail that's been on my desk for a while, and uh, it's been a it's been an uncharacteristically low mail part of our existence. I thought uh, before I let too many more weeks go by, I might open it. I could go for a little mail segment. How about a mini mail call? <laughs> Captain, I'm sorry to disturb you. I'm receiving a code 47. Verify. It is code 47, sir. Start lead emergency frequency. Captain size only. Ben, this message comes to us uh, postmarked from Ben C. He's uh, he's from South Carolina. Ben has attached extra postage because he has sent me a natural Alexander Roshenko card. Whoa! Oh my God, Ben, this is... This <laughs> so it's a folded up letter-sized piece of paper. Sure. The Roshenko is inside. It's, it's autographed, as the Roshenko is... It has uh, it has a single handwritten line. It says "Jaegers are out, Alexanders are in." Period. <laughs> That's it. Wow, is it in the same style as the Rittenhouse card packs we'd been opening up? It is. I will, uh, if you'll allow me, I will Jackie and Lori show you a picture. <laughs> I'll allow it. Remind me, what is the actor's name that played Alexander Roshenko? Uh, yeah, signed by the great and late John Stoyer. So, pretty cool gift there from Ben C. Thanks, dude. Thank you, Ben C. Uh, not sure if I totally agree that Jaeger is out, but, uh, I will say that <laughs> Alexander is in. Yeah. I don't think that they, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. What I can tell you is that there is no Alexander bubble yet. <laughs> and yet I, I, I doff my cap to you as someone who may or may not be attempting to create an artificial Alexander bubble. Yeah, that's a that's a strong opening move in a bubble creation scheme. Speaking of strong moves, Ben, we've got a strong episode coming up on the show today. Uh, why don't we pivot on over to that? It's Deep Space Nine Season 2, Episode 25, Tribunal. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> No, of course you don't. O'Brien. I am Chief Miles Edward O'Brien. This is fucking spectacular. As in Ops doing his, like, day before your vacation at work uh, thing where he's, like, downloading everything everybody needs to know and... We are perfectly capable of running this place by ourselves for a week. I think this is something a lot of us do, like, overestimating 
how important our contribution is at work. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody's like, yeah, chief, we can fucking handle a week without you here turning your wrench on everything. Like, <laughs> this fine. is the total. Like, this is the opposite of of ghosting a party. Like, <laughs> he is saying goodbye to everyone. Yeah, the, he's doing the uh, the saying goodbye without leaving. Which, uh, contrary to the Irish goodbye, which is leaving without saying goodbye. Right. Ben, as we all know, there are three rules that the greatest generation prescribes to you every time. <laughs> yeah, the, the three rules of greatest gen acquisition. Rule number one, no reclining of a seat on an airplane. Never. Ever. Rule number two. I don't remember what rule number two is. <laughs> Do you? No. We just... Oh my god, we just... Oh, we, really hope. Somebody write in, we do need to make a running list. <laughs> rule number two, question mark. <laughs> rule number three, always leave a party without saying goodbye. <laughs> I've, uh, in, in my 30s, developed the technology of leaving my own party without saying goodbye. Like, we've had house parties where I just went to bed. God, that is the best. Uh, I don't know. This is not talking out of school to say this. Uh, John Roderick famously did this at Max VonCon. Do you remember that? No. He uh, he hosted a party at his condole there. <laughs> and as soon as, like, there's a moment in every party where uh, where the party starts and there's, like, the, the amount of people that people were expecting. And then there's a moment where the party gets swole. Yeah. Too, uh, too the, many people, maybe. The exact moment where the party got swole, John went into his bedroom and shut the door behind him, like, <laughs> to, like, lay down and read. Yeah. It was great. Fun. The greatest part about that was that his bedroom was on the other side of the door where the party was happening. Right. It was, like, three feet away from him. Yeah. I mean, the, we've already gone into the reasoning why I never recline your seat on an airplane, but uh, the reasoning be- behind why you don't do the say goodbye to everybody and give them a ton of like information download knowledge dump before you leave is exactly described in this scene where everybody is so eager to get rid of him and he is so eager to you know cover his bases before he leaves that by the time he does actually leave they all turn around and start talking shit about him <laughs> and, and he does that thing where he like pops back up on the elevator you're on leave Please disembark this station. I uh, I did that to a, a roommate in college one time where he was like he was like bugging me in our in our dorm room and uh, walked out the walked out the door and I I turned to my other roommate and I was like God give me a fucking break with that guy he is so <laughs> annoying and and my <laughs> my other roommate said uh, is he right behind you and I I go no. <laughs> <laughs> And I just, I just hear him cruise past me in the hallway saying, I heard what you said. The overly theatrical no is the only way you can respond in that moment. Yeah, the no where you go up an octave. The no that could be perceived as like an intentional bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's the only refuge you have. And uh, it doesn't work, but it's, uh, it's the closest thing there is to working. On O'Brien's way to the runabout pad... He runs into an old buddy from the Rutledge days. Yeah. Uh, this guy's name is Boom! Boom! 
Oh, it's been a long time. It's like back slaps and high fives, and uh, Boone looks like a guy who sells Russian dumplings out of a food truck. He's got a very specific look, I think. Yeah. And a great voice. Boone really reads as a Boone. Yeah. Really powerful mustache. So much of my authority is derived from the power right here. Future mustache game is not so much of a thing, but it is for Boone. Yeah, Boone is uh, is keeping the the mustache flame lit. And uh, lit in a big way. They have one of those conversations where, you know, you run into somebody that you've not seen in a long time, but you're also in a hurry. Yeah. Which is tough. You know, you're like, you're trying to trying to show that person that it, it really means something to you that you're seeing them, but also you're going to be, you know, you're going to be setting your balls down on a, on a grill every second <laughs> longer this takes you. And that grill is hot. <laughs> so Boone was on the Rutledge with O'Brien. They they dropped the name of a battle that they were in. Boone is no longer a Starfleet. He's now a farmer. Is that right? Yeah, like most people in Star Trek these days. He's <laughs> a farmer. He retired into farming. But also... You want to take it easy once you retire, right? Yeah. With hard manual labor. Uh, but he is also a podcaster secretly. Because uh, in the next scene, we see him take out his Zoom H4N recorder yeah. and uh, play back a little bit of the waveform of O'Brien speaking to him. The recording is good. Good levels. Yeah, nice levels. Very clear. Not overmodulated at all. Yeah, no peaking. Nicely done, Boone. Good job, Boone. We get the backstory that uh, this is the O'Brien family's first vacation in five years, so of course they're going to do that without the kid. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, Molly's too young to remember the vacation, let's be honest. And also, uh, you know, O'Brien and Keiko may not have had sex since she was born. You're an engineer. Do something about it. Yeah, they really make with the horny pretty fast. Yeah, they're they're attempting to jump each other's bones in the cockpit of the runabout. Uh, Another another scene that ignores the very spacious back of a runabout. (laughs) Ben, what do you think it's called when people fuck on a runabout? <laughs> like it's not it's not Mile High Club, right. obviously. Right. They're not on a road, so you couldn't give anybody road head. Yeah. Is it Winnebango? Fuck it is, isn't it? <laughs> it totally is. It's uh, Winnebango. Yeah. They've got a horgon as a hood ornament, ben. Yeah. This is uh this is also the scene where the all the credits roll over. Directed by Avery Brooks this episode. How about that? And a fun episode, like a lot of fun directing. Like their their interaction as a couple is so naturalistic compared to some of the stuff on this show. The the kind of quippy banter that they have feels very like lived in, like they're two people that actually are married and 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 like the way you know, the way they get romantic is like kind of Kind of that like fun awkwardness, like does this thing tilt back? Like, like you know, when you're having uh, fun underpants time with your spouse, like it's not it's not always like slow motion with curtains blowing and candles lit and Kenny G playing in the background. You know, like sometimes there's a little hijinks. I liked all of that about this scene. One thing that was sort of a buzzkill, though, Ben, was the stranger leaning in from the back saying. Uh, you're really blowing it, dude. 
She's just not that into you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, uh, if you want the backstory on that, listen to the greatest discovery episode from a couple weeks ago when we read a comic book. Look, A.O. Keiko, for sure, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a scene that really starts with Keiko seeming to be uh, unredeemably angry with him, and uh, they like have actually a healthy relationship moment here where he notices what an asshole he's being and like shuts it down and starts being present for her. They don't get too far along with the makeouts before a... Cardassian ship shows up on the sensors and the computer is the one to tell them Ben the timing of the scene is crucial because had this ship been picked up even five minutes later <laughs> could have really been a scene yeah had this episode been made 10 years later it could have been a scene right yeah Gullivec could have seen it going in yeah, Gullivec shows up on the FaceTime, and uh, it's a random pullover for inspection, is what he's proposing, and he does not give them much of a choice in the matter. Shut down your drive and come to a full stop. And, you know, like, they kind of argue the, like, we're nowhere close to the Cardassian border thing. And he's like, yeah, like, well, the, you know, under U.S. law, the uh, the border is considered to be up to 100 miles within the the border and ice can pull you over at any time and demand your papers, please. And so from the moment they're on scene to the moment where O'Brien is being detained and taken away, it happens in like 40 seconds. Right. Shit goes down really fast. And it is deeply troubling to watch. Like there's protestations in the beginning. I I demand to know what I'm being accused of. And then full-on assault by the Cardassians. I'm not going anywhere with you. O'Brien is eventually shot and beamed off the ship, leaving a crying and screaming Keiko behind. Like, it's such a hard emotional left turn. Like, the amount of fun that they were yeah. having before this happens it really it gives you the bends you know like you're like she it's devastating really it helps it helps to have the beginning to make the end more powerful like i think that's it's very well done i agree and uh we get to see the surface of the cardassian homeworld here which is uh very orwellian like the architecture is very fascist there's like screens everywhere with just kind of a head saying you know kind of like the uh 1984 apple commercial yeah kind of head speaking to the populace about proper cardassianness or something and uh o'brien gets like hauled into a prisoner processing center they, they tell him that he's going to be in the the central prison on cardassia prime and he keeps, you know, he keeps doing the prisoner of war, like name, rank, serial number thing. And uh, they don't care that much. They uh, they turn him around and rip his clothes off. Uh, it's, a, it's a classic Cardassian prisoner treatment, you know. Get him naked. Right away. They are uh, the Lindy Englands of the galaxy. <laughs> it's an episode that pays off a callback that Dukat introduces several episodes back. 
which is like how the Cardassian judicial system works. And it combines that with the experience that we've seen that Picard went through. Like there are many things about this initial processing scene that seem familiar, beginning with the stripping and the lights and the dentist chair. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're taking hair clippings and teeth out of him. But Ben, like they don't even put down a paper sheet on that leather chair before they stick O'Brien into it. And you just don't know how many people have sat in there. It's almost like they don't even care that much about cleanliness. Yeah. That one, that moment really squicked me out. <laughs> yeah. It's so gross. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, like if you, you could have had a, a scene in, in TNG where somebody said something like the thing Ducat says about his system of jurisprudence and uh, you might never have, have uh, seen it again. This is like a few episodes later and we are getting an object lesson in Cardassian jurisprudence. Yeah. And it's, and it's at one of our favorite characters. I mean, if, I think uh, I think you can do some headcanon here about what an episode would be like using any of our main DS9 characters. And I think O'Brien's probably the guy that makes you feel the most empathy. He's more of a teddy bear than almost anybody. And like the injustice of it is so present here. Like we know that O'Brien is not a big fan of the Cardassians, but it's also impossible to imagine that he did anything to deserve what is happening to him. It is very Kafka-esque, the idea of him just being taken from his life and being told that he's on trial for something and then not being told what he's on trial for and being told that it's already done. Like, you just need to experience what this trial will be and then you'll be executed. And so all of of O'Brien's questions are responded to with with you-don't-need-to-know-style answers. Right. Yeah, and to interrogate a little bit further what I just said, like the idea of what he deserves is a cultural difference in this episode. Like yeah. the the Cardassians believe themselves to be kind of infallible in terms of their approach to justice and their idea that you're you're guilty and incapable of being proven innocent and that like that that like the idea of a trial means something very different to Cardassians than what it does to people that live in the Federation. So it's it's a, it's kind of a like fish out of water culture shock story as much as mm-hmm. it is a story about him being having an injustice visited on him. O'Brien is fairly unflappable throughout. And it begins from jump, right? He's had he's had a tooth taken out of his head. And there is never a moment where he really even raises his voice to a scream. And I feel like screaming is warranted in his situation. He's very composed. Yeah, like, I feel like the guy would hear him a lot better if he told him, (laughs) Instead, he's like, there are four lights. Just kind of, you know, normal tone of voice. Like, the one way that uh, Kalamini really affects his pronunciation is saying fur instead of for. So it'd be like, uh, there are fur lights. <laughs> That's it? Something like that. <laughs> That's the winner.
Into the room uh, steps Mokbar. I'm Mokbar. Who seems to, like, take control of the proceedings, and she is unhappy that O'Brien has been fucked with and wounded. I apologize for the way you've been treated, Mr. O'Brien. Uh, the person who has processed him is is never seen again, basically. Yeah. Um, all of those people just process people all day. It's not, you know, they they don't change their routine for anybody, even the chief archon, Mokbar. Mokbar has the hair of that, like, triangle office worker from Dilbert. <laughs> Yeah, like she she has a lot of thoughts about how men should have more rights. Sure. She also has the political leanings of a Dilbert artist and creator. <laughs> yeah. She's like, hey, maybe fascism, not such a bad idea after all. But she is most definitely portraying herself as good cop to the processor's bad cop. Like she comes in almost nice about things. Yeah. Like, hey, buddy. Sorry they roughed you up a little bit. We're just going to whisk you right through this trial and uh, on your way to the chopping block. So uh, so just hang in there, buddy. You'll be dead in a jiffy. Don't you worry your pretty <laughs> little head about it. Yeah. Uh, back on the station, we get uh, we get the conversation between Cisco and Keiko. And um, the, you know, like, this is a big diplomatic incident. Like, Starfleet has even gone to the extent of scrambling several starships, including the Entrepreneur, to the Cardassian border. And he is, you know, keeping his fingers crossed that the diplomaticness of this incident will cause the Cardassians to reconsider what they're doing. And she's like, yeah, okay, that's nice. But, like, we're talking about something that will potentially take several days or weeks Dude is being tortured now, Ben. Like, what are we doing about it? This is two straight scenes featuring Keiko where, like, her paranoia at what is happening to her absent husband is laid bare. Like, she is legit freaked out and for good reason. And everyone in that room knows what's happening to him. Odo. Mr. Bunkin. Not. (laughs) Odo's bedside manner, not great here. Because Odo's like, yeah, you're right. He's really getting work done. I just want to read you a note from my sheet of notes here. Odo, and then Arrow, no bedside manner. (laughs) Ben, I know that story efficiency means that we could never get this scene, but I really wanted the scene where uh, the Cardassians leave the runabout and Keiko inside, and she just looks down at the controls like, how the fuck am I supposed to get home? (laughs) Uh, Computer... (laughs) Go to Deep Space Nine? <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't find Deep Space Nine in your music library. <laughs> it just plays deep purple tracks. <laughs> like, she just stays out there in the, in the RV until O'Brien's tortured and killed. Yeah, yeah. Cut to end music. <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, you know, they get, they get word from... Mockbar, she gets on the FaceTime and she's like, hey, great news. So um, got your husband. He's going to have his trial and then uh, we'll kill him in a couple of weeks. So just wanted to give you that little update. All right. Bye. And and Cisco's like, wait, 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 wait. And they start asking questions. The significance of the trial is kind of new to them as well. Like they did not all take Cardassian civics in high school. And... um the foregone conclusionness is, comes as a real shock to them. The fact that the charges have not been announced comes as a real shock to them. And Keiko is still there. Like, she's still, she's present and gets into the conversation quickly. She's demanding 
information and Makbar's not willing to give it. The only demand that really does seem to land is Odo's. I volunteer to serve as Nestor in this trial. Yeah, and this is really great inside baseball because Odo knows how this system of justice works. And he has been given credentials of a Nestor Republic. Like, <laughs> he's got the stamp at his desk and everything. Like, he's ready to go. I can emboss paper just as well as anyone else, Makbar. And, and <laughs> Makbar is resistant to his joining of the trial. And it's a great scene because Odo can challenge her in a, like, using her vocabulary in a way that makes sense. It's a lot of fun. Uh, another scene that kind of further exposes what a weird position Odo has as like a guy who believes in justice systems, not necessarily on their own merits, but just as systems. Yeah. Like he was he, he was just as involved with the Cardassian one as he is with the Federation Bajoran one. So the big takeaway from this scene is that Odo has talked his way to Cardassia, and he's taking Keiko with him. Yeah, she's got the right to be present for the trial, and he's uh, thrown his hat in the ring, not as O'Brien's lawyer, but as his kind of advisor. Yeah, O'Brien has a lawyer, and he comes in the in the form of conservator Kovat, and Kovat right away encourages confession. Because the whole idea of this trial is to make it seem to the Cardassian public that justice is being served in a quick and efficient manner. I thought it was interesting that uh, O'Brien's prison garb is very similar to Laurel's prison garb in uh, Star Trek Discovery. I thought the same, yeah. Um, sort of a more formal look, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little black prison jumpsuit yeah a little murdered out compared to laurel's but uh a lot of the same a lot of the same ideas in there (laughs) i don't have a lot of faith in conservator corvette's ability to uh to get o'brien freed from his circumstance and neither does o'brien have you ever won a case winning isn't everything he's not a defender he is there to like basically speak on O'Brien's behalf during this thing that is called a trial, but is in fact, uh, you know, a public display that is designed essentially as a, as a piece of propaganda, you know, like the, the benefit of the trial is self-evident to him Mm -hmm. because it helps the common folk on Cardassia feel more confidence in the unwavering abilities of the Cardassian government. And the fact that like O'Brien has no has no dog in that fight and is primarily concerned with his own personal safety, uh, it goes right over Kovat's head. Like they're speaking to each other from two totally different points of view and basically can't get to uh, a point of understanding. I think it's instructive to compare this episode at least a little bit to Chain of Command mm-hmm. because. This is the second scene of several where O'Brien is given a chance to break or lash out or otherwise fall apart, and he just doesn't. He's unflappable. And, like, there's something about Picard falling apart in Chain of Command that put you on his side forever. Like, it it made the two-part episode that much stronger. It made it dark and sad. It made it scary, but 
I think it's useful to be scared in a circumstance like this. And when O'Brien never demonstrates that fear, like there's only so far I can go with him as a viewer down that path. You know, were you wanting him to be like to move his needle a little bit more emotionally? I kind of did. I guess so. I mean, I think that this is more about the scenes that we see him in. Like he's never put in a situation where he can be vulnerable because he's always, you know, up on his own two feet. And like the one scene where he's really getting abused is the, is when he's being processed. He's never broken, you know, it never quite gets to that here. You know, you bring up a great point with it, with the episode being very sceney. And you're totally right. Like, this is not a character episode. By the end of it, I do not feel like O'Brien is a changed man in the way that Picard clearly is after Chain of Command. Yeah. Like, and that's not what this episode is setting out to do. So no, I think, like, to the extent that we do get that, it is through Keiko. Yeah. And, you know, I think because the episode is not trying to be that, it maybe works better through Keiko. Keiko is freaking out because O'Brien has not had his three o'clock coffee and the <laughs> headache is starting to set in. Yeah, it's just like, you don't want to be around him when he hasn't had his <laughs> afternoon coffee. It is not pretty. <laughs> he is definitely an escape risk at this point. Odo pays uh, O'Brien a visit in jail and O'Brien's like, this is great. You're going to take me home, right? And Odo's like, sorry, bud. Yeah, Odo's there to... Uh, to be the go-between between two scenes. There's the scene that happens before where people meet in a brand new set on Deep Space Nine. It's uh, it's Weapons Locker 4, and they find that some photon torpedoes have gone missing. And so when Odo shows up on Cardassia, he arrives as a friend and familiar to O'Brien, but immediately pivots into some hard questions about those missing torpedoes. It's interesting, like, I feel like Kira and Dax, and even to some extent, Cisco are kind of willing to entertain the idea that O'Brien actually did this crime. This is, as far as anybody can tell, the crime that he is going to be accused of when the trial starts, stealing torpedoes in order to help the Maquis arm themselves. You know, Cisco is kind of playing the fence. He's like, I want to determine definitively one way or the other whether this was the chief. You know, we have a audio recording of him entering this room right before he left, and we know that the torpedoes were believed to have gone to the runabout and you know like whoever did this knows a lot about transporters all of that points at the chief i want to find out if it really was him um but you know the tech odo takes and like kira takes especially is like why'd you do that chief (laughs) (laughs) and uh I like that Bashir is like really riding for O'Brien, you know, like in in the scene where they where they go into the cargo bay, Bashir is like, "What are we talking about here? This is Chief <laughs> O'Brien. He is not that dude." I don't believe it. Two and a half seasons of character. We know this guy. <laughs> yeah, I like that. It's a good scene for Bashir. Yeah, totally. In the cell, Odo kind of pimps O'Brien into a great monologue about duty and and about how he considers himself and the sort of model he thought he was and what he wants to be for his family and his daughter specifically. Yeah, it's and a I nice think that has a lot him. of appeal for Odo. Like that, that helps Odo find a way to not treat O'Brien as potentially the guy, you know? 
Ben, I got a question for you. Uh-huh. The Cardassians know Odo is a shapeshifter. They know this. Sure. So if they know that, why do they let him into the cell? It's like letting in a cake with a file inside it, because <laughs> Odo is the cake and the file. Yeah. Could Odo turn himself into a suit that could surround O'Brien and disguise the both of them, do you think? Oh, like uh, O'Brien is wearing an Odo? But they look like a Cardassian? Man. That would be fucking great, Except right? Except for Odo can't make himself look like that good of a Bajoran. Yeah, it's yeah. There are limitations to Odo's for similitude, o- right? Yeah, o- Odo is stuck in the uncanny valley. So if uh, <laughs> if he tried to go to a Cardassian look, it would be imperfect. Odo Dassian's like, <laughs> He just looks like a very melty Cardassian <laughs> trying to trying to leave the cell. Herp derp! I love the state. I'm a fascist. Derp. <laughs> You got any of that yamak sauce? <laughs> I love it on everything. <laughs> I've been swimming in yamak sauce, and I love it. Anyways, off to my galore-class battleship. That would be so fun. Like the bug in Men in Black. He just kind of staggers out. <laughs> Never was like, oh, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> oh, boy. Really hit that Cardassian with the ugly stick. <laughs> Gross. So, so we cut back to the station, and Dax right. has done some some like audio analysis on this recording of O'Brien opening up the cargo bay. You know, like he got voice print analysis, and uh, the computer was satisfied that it was him and let him into this room with high powered weapons. And Dax has been able to determine that this was a reconstructed voice file. And not only that, Kira has has nailed uh, O'Brien's old buddy, Boone. Boone! Boone! Bet you didn't expect he would come back into this story. Oh, it's been a long time. Ben, this is something that any audio professional can do. Uh, for example, I can make you say this. I love to stroke it with rendered poultry fat. Using words that we've already said in the episode. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's fucked up. So it is. it has become pretty clear that there is a shadow of a doubt on the accusation that Chief O'Brien provided warheads to the Maquis. When the trial starts, the feeling for O'Brien is not so much resignation but it's defiance, right? Like he shows, he's dragged into that court. There are rules that the court has to follow. Mokbar is the judge. She's banging her gavel and she's asking him questions and she's asking him to say things. And he is like, he's flip. Yeah. And well, Odo's flip too. Odo has kind of coached him. Like he he, he wants O'Brien's vibe to be, I'm an, I'm an innocent. And... This is gonna like if they if they manage to pull this off, this is gonna be a real head fuck for the Cardassian uh, <laughs> viewers at home watching on Cardassian Court TV, because they've never seen a trial where somebody's innocence was established. Even Keiko is saying things with that attitude. Like I don't know. Like there's a way to take something like this seriously, but what they're doing doesn't necessarily read as that. Right. Yeah, kind of like how Bashir was in the Mirror Universe when he's uh, answering questions from Odo. She comes in and there's like this amazing god shot of her 
because everything is kind of from the archon's point of view or from the point of view on the floor, mm-hmm. and the archon is seating, sitting super high up. Her judge's stand is, you know, is uh, up on a couple of risers. And um, they take the idea of if this is true about the Cardassian justice system, what else is? And the first thing is like Keiko is given an opportunity to denounce her husband, which is like there's like a, you know, a right in the American legal system that you don't have to do anything in court that would incriminate your spouse. And mm-hmm. it's the opposite in Cardassian court, like, which is a fun, a, it, it's a fun yes and to the the thing that Gul Dukat said that uh, that gave us this episode, right? But uh, Odo must be shape shifting his balls to be quite large because he uh, gets out there and starts arguing O'Brien's case pretty quickly, and they're like, "Hey, shut up! You're not actually allowed to talk here." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "I don't care. I believe he's innocent." <laughs> And he's got new evidence that he's trying to introduce. It's the evidence that we saw back on DS9 about uh, this dialogue being doctored to the weapons locker. And this is driving conservator Kovac crazy. Yeah. He thought he was going to be able to coast through this trial. Right. And it's really not happening. And he, uh, he said a couple of things like uh, um, like a year from retirement. Like he's yeah. he's almost out of the game, but he's got, a, got like one last big mission. So, he's getting a little too old for this shit. Yeah, th- th- like from Kovat's perspective, he's De Niro in Heat, basically. <laughs> right. And uh, and and he he does a lot of uh, like Cardassian virtue signaling. Like I don't I don't want to prove anybody innocent here. This is not what I want in this trial. Uh, so just for the record, if anybody asks, I'm not uh, a fan of this uh, way of proceeding. <laughs> Uh, Your Honor, please do not confuse my uh, efforts <laughs> as any sort of example of me giving a shit <laughs> pursuant to my client. Yeah, We really do a lot of cross-cutting between DS9 and the trial, and what's going on on DS9 is that Boone, Boone! is dragged into a conversation with Cisco and Kira, uh, and what's made clear is that his life has sort of fallen apart. After the events of Setlick Three, yeah, and uh, you know he's got he's got all of the gripes that you that you talk about as a as a Mayquise, as a guy on the wrong side of the the treaty, but they're like, hey, why uh, why have you not been in touch with your parents or your wife for a long time? And uh, he's like, um, you know, no reason, don't get along. And they're like, that's not what they said. Yeah, they said they've been missing you big time. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah, they send Christmas cards. They don't hear back. Very, very hurtful. What's that about, buddy? Do you think this guy wouldn't be so suspicious if he didn't have an anachronistic mustache? <laughs> well, he doesn't have like a mirror universe mustache. He's got like a, he's got like a cop mustache. He's got a Magnum PI mustache. But you never see that mustache in Star Trek. Yeah. It makes him conspicuous from the start. Well, we also we also get the scene where Bashir like is uh, he's a, he's in the infirmary late at night and tries to turn the lights on. They don't go on. He's like standing there clapping like an idiot, and the lights aren't turning on. <laughs> yeah. Hey Siri, and he gets paid a visit by a shadowy figure. This is Boone, right? Boone. Is it? I don't know. Like they never, they never tell you who this is. I feel like they're establishing a character here. That's why. 
It oh, can't really? be Boone. This is something. This is someone that's going to be paid off. I. I mean, that's all I can. Imagine. I think it's Bashir covering his voice. <laughs> He's but, done it before. Yeah, this is Maquis Batman. Maquis here to tell Bashir <laughs> that Boone is not a Maquis and that they're not behind this O'Brien getting stuck in Cardassian death row situation, which is a uh, you know. The Mayquees have a have a, a an image that they've earned and they want to uphold it, you know? The Mayquees don't allow facial hair. <laughs> Anyone who's in the Mayquees knows that. It makes it incredibly difficult to put on a vinyl mask. This galaxy deserves a much better form of personal landscaping. <laughs> it's incredibly painful to take off the bat mask. If you have even a little bit of facial hair. <laughs> you merely adopted using Nair, Batman. I was born using it. <laughs> uh, back at the trial, O'Brien does not want Keiko to be there for the execution. There's a little bit of a private moment between them. Unclear whether Keiko would, would actually stay for it. I get the feeling that she would. You know, she's she's in this fight, and... Uh, Keiko's rugged. She's had her school blown up before. Like, yeah. she's been through some scrapes. She ain't scared. No. So we, we got, like, uh, you know, witness Gully Vic, and Odo has just, like, fully inserted himself into this trial at this point. Like, he's, like, asking questions. He's demanding things of the court. Uh, and there's a proportional response from Kovat, right, who is just, like... A total bootlick at this point. Like he's taken Macbar's boot and just shoved it totally down his throat. Yeah, which is fun. Like there's a proportionality to it. The more on edge Odo becomes, the more ass kissy Kovat becomes. The the anger of the Archon is is probably the biggest problem, right? Like she's gonna have say eventually about what happens to O'Brien, and I, it feels a little bit like bad defense attorney to be so antagonistic the way Odo yeah. is being. Odo just like doesn't know any other way to be. He never plays politics, you know? He just pursues the thing he thinks is right a thousand percent. You know, it occurs to me that there may be such a thing as like a form of character trust with him. Like he already he already demonstrated his bona fides up front with with reference to him being a nester when no one else knew what that was. Yeah. So you sort of have to trust that like that his strategy here is sound in some way, even though we have no reason to, like, there's no corroborating evidence that would have us believe that. Yeah, but also, like, everything the story is telling us is that the Cardassians are not interested in any of the kind of shit he's trying. One thing I really wish we got to show sort of the passage of time, but also how dire the circumstances become or maybe how unordinary the trial has become Mm -hmm. is like a scene back to the exterior where like maybe a growing number of people are watching the trial on the screen yeah so as to demonstrate that this is you know much longer than it usually takes and this is an outlier form of a trial as it is the variables are, are contained yeah within this this courtroom and the idea of this being a show trial is only paid lip service to like it sort of seems like the O.J. Simpson saga trial of the century to the Cardassians and in you know when they when they talk about it but 
we never get the sense that like the way this is proceeding like is causing a problem for them, you know? Like yeah. like the trial is there to demonstrate to the hoi polloi on Cardassia that the government is in control and in charge and knows what's right and never makes mistakes and it's fucking spinning apart, you know? Like it's you would want people to be at least reacting to it. You would want to like get a sense of what or or just get a set like okay like the government like stopped streaming this feed you know like yeah like someone should pull the plug on it but as it is like when this story comes to a point and a climax is when Cisco and Boone boom come in from stage right right they've uh, they've t- they've hauled Boone into the infirmary and verified uh, something about him that explains why he hasn't really been hanging out with his family for the last eight years. As soon as he's delivered to the courtroom, the trial stops. Like the Archon, like the fact that he shows up is all the Archon uh, needs to decide that the trial is over. She's like, all right, you're guilty or whatever, but we're going to commute your sentence. We're going to turn you back over to Starfleet. Uh, Sorry for the hassle. Uh, this is a demonstration of how magnanimous we are. It is the ultimate way in which this episode becomes about the macro story instead of the micro story, like you were describing earlier. Yeah. Like, this was never about the trial. This was about something bigger. Yeah. And what it turns out being about is that Boone was never Boone. Yeah. He was a reskinned Cardassian. A Cardassian with a mustache. Imagine that. You know what? He might have gotten away with it, too, if he just didn't have that pesky mustache, right? <laughs> the plan was sort of interesting, right? It's so not about O'Brien. That's what's amazing. Right. O'Brien is entirely caught up in it. The trial was about establishing a, an official relationship between the Federation and the Maquis. And in making that public during the trial, it was going to be used as a reason to undo the treaty, and give cover to the idea of Cardassians attacking the colonies on the other side of the DMZ. Yeah. And like like O'Brien, the like Kovat is kind of also fucked fucked over by the situation. He's he's won his first trial, which is not his job, and like we go out on him saying like they're gonna fucking kill me. But it's sort of played as a slide whistle yeah. too. Like, you rarely get a guy saying, well, I'm dead, and have it being kind of a laugh line. Yeah, that, 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 that. Yeah, but it's slide whistle after slide whistle, because uh, the last scene is on the runabout on their way home, where uh, O'Brien is being told that he really deserves a vacation and a cup of coffee for going through what he did. (laughs) So from one prison into another, O'Brien goes. And he says, like, but I don't have any summer beach reading. And Keiko uh, kind of uh, takes that as her opportunity to let everybody know that they're going to fuck. They clearly aren't allowed to use the replicator on board the runabout, right? <laughs> yeah, that's not a good beat of writing. That kind of That's like writing that forgets what universe this is taking place in. It's betting that you don't know that there's a back area to the runabout. Yeah, that's not a good bet, DS9 writers. Yeah, I'm going to win that bet every time. Did you like this episode, Ben? Uh, Yeah, I liked it. it. was a nice little bottle episode, a little cops and robbers where we win. It doesn't necessarily make a big difference for like larger story arcs, but uh, it, it 
it's you know it's Deep Space Nine saying okay we've got the established Maquis we've got the this interesting idea about what jurisprudence looks like on Cardassia let's make a little bottle episode about it and uh, and I, I mean I don't know if we've been to Cardassia Prime yet but uh, I really liked seeing that yeah I did too I mean I like the story without the bookends I know I know the reason they're there like you need an inciting incident and you need a conclusion that softens the horror of what this thing was for O'Brien. But I think it softens it too much. Like I would have liked to have felt more deeply for O'Brien's circumstance and to feel like he was in true danger. And I think the bookends to this story make that impossible in a way that I feel like could have served the story even more. Yeah. I mean, I like it. It's a great O'Brien episode. He gets a great monologue here. It's well-directed by uh, by Avery Brooks. I think he's he's competent. He, if he's not competent, he is very good at directing. Yeah, it, I I don't know how much directing he'd done before this, but uh, but uh, if this is his first time at the show, he did great. Like a lot of first time uh, Star Trek directors, not a lot of flash, and I think that's good. Like you don't want to have your compositions really stand out, and I think Frakes was like that the first time he directed, and so was Lavar Burton. Like. Like it wasn't, hey, look at me style directing of compositions and actors. Everything looked very lived in and natural. And that's good. Did a great job. Uh, Adam, do you want to check and see if we have any Priority One messages? Yeah, let's do it. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Ben, our first Priority One message is of a commercial nature. It is from our friends at Mammary Alpha. It's the Mammary Alpha podcast on iTunes or at (laughs) MammaryAlpha.com. I love that name. Tell me about it, Adam. Message goes like this. If you like podcasts chock full of Star Trek references, raunchy jokes, bad puns, and even worse accents, and we know you do, (laughs) check out Mammary Alpha. It's an actual play RPG podcast set in our favorite sci-fi universe and featuring a cast of all women. Join a starship not unlike the hood with a crew of lieutenants that wouldn't cut it on the entrepreneur as they embark on fun space adventures that only end in orgy like 20% of the time. That's Mammary Alpha on iTunes or at MammaryAlpha.com. That, you know, you, you know how to spell Mammary, don't you? M-A-M-M-A-R-Y. A-L-P-H-A. Hell Mammary yeah. Alpha. That sounds like a great uh, a great sidecar podcast for anybody that's a friend of DeSoto to get into. That is a ship full of women. It's it's uh, it's Starship Angel One, it sounds like. Yeah. I don't believe this. <laughs> here's here's the deal, Adam. I think we are but one example of the many all dude Star Trek podcasts. And uh, the, oh, world needs more of, the world needs more of this. I completely agree. On the other side of that coin, the world needs far less of us. Uh, I would hard agree with that as well. Um, <laughs> I uh, I believe that we have met some or all of the ladies that do this show at uh, live shows of ours. So uh, good on yeah. them for uh, taking the leap and starting their own thing. Always pro friends of DeSoto projects for sure. And, and this one especially. Yeah. So go find Mammary Alpha on iTunes or at MammaryAlpha.com. All right, Adam, our second Priority One message is of a personal nature. It is from Connor, 
Notice to Ben and Adam. Hey guys, I found your pod just a couple of months ago, and since then, I have watched all episodes everywhere. Just wanted to throw some money your way and express my regrets that I can't see your tour in 2018 because I will be starting music grad school. Thanks for all the laughs, and hopefully I can get out to see you next year. Well, yeah, I mean, once you've uh, completed music grad school, you'll be drowning in money so <laughs> i was i was just gonna thank connor for uh buying a priority one message now before he can no longer afford one yeah wait a second <laughs> i'm just doing the math on this one priority one message costs about four times as much as a ticket to a, a, a live show of ours connor's not going to school for economics then. <laughs> he made that very clear in his message yeah but uh thank you so much for getting a message connor and uh and thank you for listening to all episodes everywhere yeah completionist i I love hearing about people that start from the beginning right there's a lot of good stuff back there a lot of good stuff in our caboose yeah we got a lot of nice junk in that trunk (laughs) if you have an enviable donkey that's what we've got (laughs) if could uh, set a drink on it adam (laughs) (laughs) you can see it from the front adam (laughs) <laughs> this is a show with great haunches yeah i think we've always known that that booty sick sick and thick <laughs> adam uh folks that want to support the show can go to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron it is a hundred bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message both of which you heard examples of here today and uh they're a great way to support the production of our show Thanks to one and all. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! Yeah, my Shimoda's Boone. Boone! Boone! Oh, it's been a long time. It's really chaos agents all the way down in this episode. Uh, But Boone is maybe the chaosiest. (laughs) Without really having to do that much. Like, he has a very basic conversation with O'Brien up front. He's hauled into an interrogation where his answers are just not very illuminating. Like, for someone who is as destructive as he is uh, in relationship to the story, he is very chill and unflappable. (laughs) And that, that was just a weird way to be. I, I can really, I could appreciate it about him. So he's my drunk Shimoda. What about you? You might want to look at time code for this Shimoda. The um, when the O'Briens uh, first set out on their Winnebago trip, Keiko is asking O'Brien about something, whether he packed something, and he's like, "I don't remember even talking to you about that." And she says, "You talked to me for half an hour in bed last night," and he says, "No, oh, no, no. I was uh, I was asleep the second my head hit the pillow." And so apparently he was sleep talking. But the joke he makes is, there must have been a third person in bed with us. And then he stops and puts his hand to his chin and ponders that idea. <laughs> it's like at five, oh, five minutes and, I don't know, five seconds, six seconds, when he does this, it, he really is like, wow, that's an idea. <laughs> yeah, he's clearly not reading the schematics. Like, he is preoccupied with the idea of... A third 
Very interesting. Maybe we should get on uh, one of th- one of those uh, one of those kinkster dating apps. He picks up the pad not long after that, and he just starts Google searching the lifestyle. <laughs> You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name and not a giant social media company's name with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24x7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. 
topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. What do we have coming up on the next episode? The next episode is Season 2, Episode 26, The Gem Hadar. During a trip to the Gamma Quadrant with Jake and Nog, Cisco and Quark are imprisoned by soldiers working for a mysterious power known as the Dominion. The Dominion, you say? <laughs> the, the Dominion indeed, Adam. A group that has been referred to maybe two or three times? Yeah, we keep we keep hearing their name and then having dun dun dun. Well, this is the episode where everything changes, huh? Yeah. Uh, end of season two. Twenty six episodes in season two. Wow, it's it's kind of going by fast. Yeah. What do you think that? I I kind of feel that. The Netflix description is Cisco's plans for father son bonding are ruined when Jake invites Nog to accompany them on a trip to the Gamma Quadrant. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I like that one better. Yeah. There's much more uh, TGIF level of story there. Yeah. Well, what do you say we take a look at uh, whether or not we're going to do this episode in a particular way? You're required to learn as you play. Roll. For right now, we're on square 79, Ben. 79, you say. So uh, we could easily get caught in the nebula. Which, yeah. Uh, no notes is what caught in the nebula is. It's the it's the show we do. I mean, I guess it's not blind because we've seen the episode, but uh, I don't think it sh- it would surprise anyone to know that uh, that you and I take notes as we watch the episode and right. occasionally refer to those notes as we do pod. It's a responsible thing to do. Usually, I've got a sheet of notes and then I've got the episode open and I like scrub around in it to find a scene that we're talking about and. Uh, not having those would feel fairly terrifying to me. So this is a wow. square I'd I'd, uh, I'd really not like to hit. So please show without a net. Please roll the dice and don't fuck me over here, Adam. <laughs> All right, All right, I am rolling, and it is a one. Chula! Did I win? Hardly. A snake eye. <laughs> so that gets us to uh, to square eighty. All right. Which is a regular old episode by you and me. Just a plain old ep. And uh, that feels like a good way to go out on season two. Plain old eps are some of the best eps. That being settled, we should uh, direct the people to talk about the episode online using the hashtag greatestgen. Uh, Recommend the show to friends and family and stuff. Really helps us. Uh, Adam is on Twitter at CutForTime. I'm on there at BenjaminRAHR. You can uh, find us on Facebook. There's a great Facebook community surrounding this show. And uh, you can write us an email at drunkshmoda at gmail.com. We read almost everything. We read everything that comes in. We don't reply to everything anymore just because not enough hours in the day. But uh, if you need to get in touch with us for something, that's the way to do it. Our thanks, as always, to uh, Dark Materia, the creator of the original greatest generation music uh, as well as adam ragusia who has 
reskinned that music and turned it into our fun DS9 theme and interstitial theme music. So thanks to him. Listen to The Greatest Discovery and Friendly Fire if you get a chance. And uh, and our deepest heartfelt thanks to the folks that go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and uh, put their money behind the shows that we make uh, because it has really changed the game for all of us. And with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of Greatest Generation Deep Space Nine, which features... Uh, ben and I bonding during a long road trip <laughs> in which Ben plays the father and I play the son. It, it could be no other way, Adam. <laughs> Hold me to your ample bosom, Ben. <laughs> what? MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.